look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, exiting week one of the NFL season, one of the newsiest weeks in a while, and entering week two with more Antonio Brown news. There are new and explosive charges against Brown in a story breaking Tuesday night as I record this podcast. This week, I'll have two guests, former NFL executive and Bill Belichick confidant, Mike Lombardi, breaking down the Antonio Brown odyssey with me. Now, we spoke late Tuesday afternoon before the allegations against Brown broke Tuesday evening. Also, later in the podcast, I'll be joined by All-Pro Green Bay tackle David Bakhtiari. We'll talk Aaron Rodgers in the pack and much more. But first, you know, until now, this, this Brown story had had basically had hijacked the first week of the NFL's 100th season. And then Tuesday night, it took an ominous turn. Uh, according to a lawsuit filed in Florida, a trainer who says she went to college with Brown at Central Michigan sued him for sexual assault and rape in three distinct incidents in 2017 and 2018. Now, these are her allegations. Taylor accused Brown of raping her in May 2018 while he was still a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and she filed the suit in Florida on Tuesday. Brown's attorney issued a statement Tuesday night denying all these claims, saying they stem from Brown's refusal to invest in a personal business project pursued by Taylor in 2017. They had had a consensual personal relationship, according to this statement. Now, ESPN's Josina Anderson reported Tuesday night that Brown plans to countersue Taylor. Okay, so what does this all mean? I think it's too early in this story to say exactly what it means to Brown and the Patriots. But I read the summary of the suit Tuesday night, and the allegations are really disturbing. Taylor says she's had panic attacks and felt suicidal because of the alleged attacks. Now, Brown, uh, obviously, in the wake of uh, his behavior on the way out of Oakland, already is, I guess you'd call it radioactive in many circles. Um, these circles are football and, you know, in, in the general public as well. This obviously is not going to help. Um, now, Whenever you listen to this this week, uh, the story, I'm sure, is going to have changed several times. I, I don't know what the Patriots will do. I can't predict the Patriots will do, whether, they'll, they, whether they want to move on from Brown because the story is so ugly uh, or whether they'll just let the legal process take its course 
in cases like this, usually the NFL will allow the legal process to take its course. Um, and so uh, I don't know what either side is going to do right now. Um, but in any case, the Patriots will have a decision to make. And, and look, I think um, not that this is going to influence what they do, but I think they'll take a battering in the court of public opinion regardless of which direction they go. You know, taking a battering in the court of public opinion has never concerned Bill Belichick. It's happened to him many times, um, and he doesn't really flinch at things like this. However, I think the public opinion and uh, the public's opinion and public opinion has always been very important to Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. Uh, so I truly can't predict what, uh, what, which way they'll go. Stay tuned for this story to take a lot of twists and turns in the coming days. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously from there, there is no good segue from this story to a football podcast. So I'm just going to begin with my conversation with Mike Lombardi. He's now a columnist for The Athletic, and he has a great podcast for Cadence 13. Um, and that comes after years being an NFL executive. He uh, most recently worked for the Patriots. Um, and so when he talks about Bill Belichick, I usually listen. Mike, I, I guess I'd be curious because you most recently worked for the Patriots. This column was written, and I thought it was very, very interesting because this column was written with just a lot of institutional knowledge, I thought. And I thought that it probably was a pretty easy column for you to write. One of the things you said in your column is, the reality is that Brown just joined the NFL version of the Navy SEALs. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a roundabout way, I guess you could probably just sort of uh, put your feet on the floor in the morning and get out of bed and write this in about 15 minutes. So <laughs> how, do you, how did you feel about the decision, and how do you think it's going to work? You know, it really goes back to Al Davis. When Al Davis used to talk about bringing players in, he was, you know, always about what's the plan for the player. Now, that got away from us later in, in his career, later in life, when he wasn't as feisty and he wasn't as involved in terms of his ability to be involved as age creeped in. And, but Belichick has taken that program over. And so there wasn't a time in Cleveland nor in New England where we brought a player in and Bill just thought it was all going to go to plan. I mean, he didn't just think it's going to work. I mean, there was a specific plan in place. And I think you can see the difference in the two organizations. I mean, nobody has seen Brown since Saturday when he was running around his backyard. Uh, he's in New England. Nobody has seen him since. He's in the witness protection program. He might as well be in West Cape May because nobody's going to find him. He's done nothing media-wise. Meanwhile, in Oakland, it was always a, a circus. It was always kind of like, okay, here he is, the balloons and all that stuff. And I just think it's a way different way to manage players. I thought Rex Burkhead said it really well. He said, look, I'm not at liberty to talk about it because Belichick talked to the team about it. You know, Belichick talked to the team about it. Now, he wasn't on the team on Sunday when they played Pittsburgh, but he, even if he were on the team on Sunday, he wouldn't have been on the sideline. He, went, he was in a hotel right. room exactly where he needs to be. So Bill's going to do everything in his power 
and he's got a lot of power to make sure that he controls as much as of the Antonio Brown situation that he can control. Meanwhile, the Raiders really didn't have any of it. Um, what do you think happened? Let's let's go back now because my theory is that as we record this on Tuesday, late Tuesday afternoon, uh, my theory is that this started to really change sometime after Antonio Brown stepped to the, the dais and Will Kiss, the PR guy, I guess had him read a statement where he apologized. I still don't know what he apologized for, um, you know, but he apologized for something. And then I think that night and the next day is really when it started to change. I really think that last Thursday he thought he was going to play for the Oakland Raiders. So tell me, what's your understanding of when things really started to change for Antonio Brown? I think when, I think when Mayock went and said he's either got to be all in or all out. Like, I think that conversation needs to be had. I just don't think it needs to be had in the media. I think it needs to be behind right. closed doors, face-to-face. I think that, look, it's hard to go face questions about Antonio Brown every single day, whether it's the hot air balloon, whether it's his feet, whether it's his helmet. I mean, those are... You know, that endure, that's, a, that's a tough thing to deal with. But I think anytime you talk to the player directly f- to the media and not face-to-face, then it becomes a little pro- – then you have a problem with the relationship between the player and yourself. And I think Belichick is the king at going in the room, you shut the door, and you and him have a conversation. And I can tell you without a, th- with a, a thousand percent certainty that no one knows what that conversation is about because he's never telling anybody, nor is anybody asking him. So that conversation is always between him and the player. And I don't think that happened. Now, I'm told reliably that Antonio Brown was told when he apologized that he was, uh, was going to have his guarantees and his, uh, and his fine was all in place. I don't, and it was told to him, not to Rosenhaus' agent. I, I, the way he acted, it sure doesn't seem like that, does it? seems like he reacted to the fine and the lack of guarantees and said goodbye. Now, maybe he slept on it and said, I'm not doing it. Well, you, explain that for a second. You're saying that, that Antonio Brown was told that, he was, that his guarantees were going to be in place at some point Thursday or Friday? No, I'm, t- I'm told that he was told what, before he read that apology that he was losing his guarantees and he was, lo- and he was getting fined which I found hard to believe because it didn't seem like that. Yeah. It, it didn't you – know, why would he yeah, apologize? I don't think that that – <clears throat> I find you know? it hard to believe that that's true. I, I was told I, because, by – Yeah. I mean, I was told that by somebody, and, I, and it just – to me, it didn't play out. Now, whether they told yeah. Rosenhaus and he didn't tell the kid, I don't know, but that didn't seem right. It seemed like when the kid found out, he lost his guarantees and got fined. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have fined him. I'm saying that – if you're going to take away somebody's guarantee, you, you should have a meeting and lay it out like the Navy SEALs would. Here's what's going to have to happen for you to make it through the Navy SEALs. If you want to join, join. Okay, so, Mike, you, you, would, you would have institutional knowledge of something else that really, I think, interests a lot of people. And that is, when did these negotiations really start? The thing that I've, I've learned covering the NFL over the years is that there's a real value in relationships 
at very tenuous times. For instance, Drew Rosenhaus and Bill Belichick have gotten this, have had a relationship over the years where uh, Rosenhaus can call Belichick and vice versa and say, and say whatever it is they want to say, and they're both going to go to their graves with it, or at least Bill will, <laughs> you know? And, um, and so I wonder, what do you think about when this really started, this thing with uh, the Patriots and Antonio Brown? I think it started back in March. I think it started back when the Steelers said they were going to trade him. And I think that Rosenhaus made it aware of teams that he wanted to go to. And it was very, it was told that they were not trading him to the Patriots. It, you know, mm -hmm. and so that put them out of it. But then Rosenhaus knew back in March, and I'm not accusing anybody of tampering here because this was, this was out in the open, uh, that he knew the Patriots would have an interest. And then as this year went on, the Patriots really never solved the, whether you call it the Gronk problem or whether you call it the receiver problem, they really never handled it. You know, and so he knew, but he also knew there were other teams. Rosenhaus I mean, had, per, didn't Rosen, didn't Rosenhaus have permission to speak to teams around the NFL last March? He did, yeah. I mean, he was talking to teams yeah. because there was no way Antonio Brown was getting traded unless he could work out the contract. So he had to be involved. Right, right, right. Um, <clears throat> okay, so now let's fast forward to this past weekend. Um, is it conceivable <coughs> that Rosenhaus and Belichick could have talked Saturday at noon and gotten this done within a half hour or 45 minutes? It's probably exactly what happened. It took probably 45 to, minutes to get it done. Bill probably made it very clear to Rosenhaus, you know, here's what I'm going to need set up. Here's what he, Rosenhaus said, hey, I'm going to need this set up. It probably went back and forth on a negotiation. Didn't take very long. And uh, and from there it went, you know. And so I don't think it took very long. Uh, those things typically don't. I think the player ended up deciding that he wanted to be in, didn't want to be in Oakland. He wanted to be somewhere, you know, and I think New England was an, obviously an opportunity for him to be there. Um, when you heard all this going down, you woke up Saturday morning and you, and you, you eventually he heard about the England. release. I knew he was going to New England. I mean, I knew he was going. There's just look. You have to go back to 2015, opening day on a Thursday night. Antonio Brown was targeted 11 times. He had nine catches for 133 yards and one touchdown. He was doubled on damn near almost every play, and he still made nine catches for 130. I mean, there's great respect in the building for the player. Great respect, you know. And so once I knew there was great respect in the player, and you know, Bills, you know, Peter, you've covered the Giants to the Lawrence Taylor days. You have institutional knowledge about how. Parcells and Bell, they can handle players great. They can handle talent. You know, now it's yeah. not, you know, there's certainly, then this is what goes. Bill's not afraid of talent. Bill's not afraid of telling somebody what he thinks. Bill's not afraid of telling a player the, the truth, and that's what I wrote about. I mean, he's not even scared. He's not going to sugarcoat it, you know, and he's not going to give a player permission to release a video with his voice on it because that conversation between him and the player are going to be sacred, and it's going to be uh, between both of them. I have to tell you, of all the things that happened, I, am, I was blown away by John Gruden in, in all of this. First of all, it, to me, he was the classic enabler, you know, where – 
no matter what happened, hey, don't worry, we're going to, this will be okay, we're going to make this work. I mean, there was never any thought. Uh, I mean, uh, his voice on that videotape, you know, that, that, uh, that Antonio Brown taped him on Friday night, his voice was almost pleading, will you please stop this stuff and just play football? You just tell. And then when he signs with New England, Gruden's first thing out of his mouth is, uh, well, you know, I wish him the best. He's a great guy. He's so misunderstood. I just, I mean, why can't somebody, somebody say what they really feel? If that's what John Gruden really feels, first of all, I'll be shocked. But secondly, I would much rather have him said, I have no comment. Because it's so, I, I just, I, I, lo I lost respect for Gruden hearing him say Peter, those things. Doing, I really he did. Does it all the, he does it all the time, Peter. He did it with the Khalil Mack. He, he, he never wants to be the bad guy. I call him the Will Rogers of scouting. He never wants to be the bad guy. He, he said, yeah. I hope things work out when, when and, and, and he's got a 10-year contract for $100 million and all the authority. We both like Mike. I like Mike Mayock. You like Mike Mayock. We both like But Mike doesn't have the authority to do whatever he wants to do in that organization. There's only one guy. There's one guy that can do anything he wants to do. I mean, he's fired people in, the, in that organization that have been in there since but when Al Davis was roaming the sidelines and, and John was able to fire him. John has all the authority in the building. So for him to say, we'll see yeah. how it works out, like that, that's classic John. He doesn't want to take any accountability for it. And, he gets, yeah. and he's been getting away with it for, I mean, I'm, the only, I'm probably the only person who calls him out on it. You know, I always call it because yeah. he, he he'll never tell you the truth. You never get the whole story. I, I don't, you know, I, I just would, how he handled this really would bother me. It just would really bother me at, at some but the point. Mac, Peter, go back, say, and, go, yeah. go back to the Mac thing. The Mac thing was similar. He never, he said he never talked to Mac. Yeah. I mean, you just got Is the head coaching possible? job at the Oakland. No, not for me. I mean, he said the rules, you just got the head coaching job at the Oakland Raiders. I mean, the number one thing you should do is you go talk to every star player on your team and get a feel, you know. And I and and I will say this: if you go back and read my athletic column last year, I defended them. I defended the trade because I thought okay, and I and I wrote it at the time. I said it. I I know John Gruden. I think this is what he's going to do. But for right now, I'll defend it. He, he wants to maybe he wants to take the Patriot approach of not paying one person twenty million other than the quarterback and having a bunch of depth on the team. But if he goes out and signs a receiver, then all bets are off. And what did he do? He traded Amari Cooper, and he signs a receiver. So all bets are off. Basically signed two receivers, Think of, if you think about it, you know. Sure. Because they, they paid money to, uh, to Williams, too, you know. Yep. And um, to Tyrell. Um, what do you think when, when Antonio Brown walked in the building on Monday, what do you think Bill said to him when he met with him? I think he called him in his office and he said, look, you know, the, we're, this is the way we operate in this building. It's completely different than any other building. Here's how you have to, you're expected. Here's what you're accountable for. Um, you know, we're going to do everything in our power to make you the best player you can be for our football team and help us win. But nothing comes before the team. 
Nothing comes the we define mental toughness as doing what's right for the team when it might not be right for you. And so, you know, you can do what you want to do. Brady has an Instagram account. Brady has a fate, but but the but the Patriots aren't involved in that stuff. You do your thing, you know, but we don't have phones and meetings. You come to practice, you work hard, you do your job, you be attentive, you put the team first. That's it. Read the sign on the way in the door. What is it? Well, the sign on the way in the door is do your job, put the team first, be attentive, speak for yourself. It's pretty simple. Those are the four rules in the building. They're the only four rules in the building. And Belichick's job is to uh, is to make sure that those rules are upheld. So nobody spe- that's why Rex Burkhead isn't going to talk about Antonio Brown because there's a sign that walks in the door that says "Speak for yourself." Yeah, I mean they just dominated that's the Pittsburgh Steelers thirty-three to three, and they were talking in their <laughs> locker room. The players were talking about it in their locker room about how how they have to improve. Yeah, yeah. that's the culture that I mean, that's it was what funny. he's created. <clears throat> I talked to Brady after the game for i don't know six seven minutes not long and uh and he was very very clear you know if i if you know because i tried to direct the the conversation to man this if this works you guys are going to be pretty good and you know and that kind of stuff and and he kept saying he said it maybe two or three different times that uh we just have to get to work you know the only thing in 2007 Randy came in here, and the only thing really that mattered is we worked hard. Everybody worked hard. Randy worked hard. And he said, so we have so much to do. And he kept going on that tack. And so you can just tell he's Bill Belichick's quarterback. There's no doubt. The two of them, and he allows, as Jeff Van Gundy has eloquently said before, he's Jeff Van Gundy says your best player must set the tone of intolerance that anything gets in the way of winning. And that's what he does he's going to force everybody to be on the same page. And, you know, Antonio Brown's going to go in there and he's going to be treated just like the 63rd guy on the practice squad. You know, he's going to have to work and they're going to teach him how to play. Now, here's where I think this is really important to understand how he affects their team. Without Gronk, Brady loves three receivers inside. He had Gronk, he had James White, and he had Edelman. He loses Gronk, and he doesn't have anybody to replace Gronk. He doesn't have a tight end. Now, maybe when Watson comes back, Watson could assume that role after week four. But for right now, Antonio Brown, Edelman, and James White slash Sonny Michelle, those three guys can dominate the middle of the field, which then leaves Josh Gordon on the outside and Philip Dorsett on the outside. And Brady wants to throw the ball inside. That's where he wants to throw the ball. And with those three guys inside, it's hard to double. It's hard to play one robber, one rat. It's hard to play all those coverages that try to take away the middle of the field because you you can't take all three guys away. What are the odds that whenever the Patriots' last game of this season is, what are the odds that Antonio Brown is on the roster for that game? You know, I would say, look, I think this, and I wrote, this is what I wrote, uh, you know, fear does the work of reason. I think if he's not on the roster at the end of the year and he can't make it there, you know, I, I think it's going to be a, a, a tough pill for his career. A lot of, I mean, look what Tony Dungy for, on NBC, he went and ripped the move. He, you know, he said it was horrible. He, he's mad at Kraft for letting it happen. Now, you know, I mean, look, that you can get mad at it, but Antonio Brown's behavior, I thought, was was horrendous when he was in Oakland. There's no doubt. But, I mean, 
Tyreek Hill's playing in Kansas City, and I'm not sure his behavior is is is. Uh, I know his behavior in college was was ten times worse than this behavior. Yeah, I don't know. I th- there's something about this, Mike. I don't know how you feel. There's something about this that just stinks. The whole thing, you know. The guy shot his way out of town and got rewarded with a $10 million contract or whatever the money is, I don't know, whatever it is, to play for the best team in recent history and maybe the best team in history. It's just there's something about it that just stinks. Well, but, I mean, look, Seattle was right there going to pay him. I mean, there was other – I mean, I think the list of people were going to pay him. I mean, the Redskins would have gladly paid him, except the problem was they couldn't even get to play. They couldn't get to bat. Seattle would have paid him too. I mean, yeah. there was a there wasn't a big market, but there was. Don't kid yourself. There was a market. And you know, right. I'm not saying you're wrong, Peter. I think what he did in Oakland was was despicable. But I think you knew going in, you knew going in that there was going to be some issues. You knew what Bruce Arians said about him before you got him, who was in Pittsburgh. If you called Mike Munchak, who's yeah. the line coach at Denver, you would have gotten his opinion. So you know you had to manage the situation. Um, Mike, I'll just ask you one other thing about the events of the week in the NFL. As somebody who, not very recently, but recently, was the general manager of the Cleveland Browns, tell me in a nutshell whether you are surprised at what happened in week one to Cleveland and what you think this season holds for Cleveland. Well, I wasn't surprised at all. I, I, in fact, I've written it. I've said it on the podcast on GM Shuffle that you have to get good before you get great. The NFL is a humbling league. You, you just don't become great. And when you only have had, let's say, 13 games as a starting quarterback in the NFL, people don't really have a read on you yet. I mean, remember Colin Kaepernick was awful good as a rookie, right? And then as the years went on, he wasn't as effective. <laughs> Forget the social issues and the politics. That, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about his play on the field. And so you have to handle people differently. So Baker Mayfield last year was incredible. Got out of the pocket. He was accurate. He made a ton of plays. But defensive coordinators are smart, especially guys like Dean Peace who have been around the league a long time. They rush you differently. How you react to that rush is different. Your team just can't turn it off and on. Antonio, you know, they can't just become great. Odell Beckham said, you know, we're going to be like the Patriots, and then the next day he left OTA days. He's wearing a watch on the field. They, have, they set the record for penalties. There's no discipline. You know, so you could just tell that they're reading their press clippings. And I, and I said this all along. I called them the Virgil Salazzo of the NFL. They went from being nobody really worried about them to the hunted one. Yeah, yeah. And once you become the hunted right one, about that. The, yeah. Once you become the hunted no, one, it's very di- difficult. It, look, poor, look at poor Virgil. Yeah, I. You know, the one thing that bothered me coming into this year is that they had two guys on their roster who had experience playing football in January, other than just a cameo: Demetrius Harris, the tight end, and Morgan Burnett, the safety. Other than that, the 53 guys or the 51 guys on the final roster uh, basically had no idea of how to handle success because they never really had success, you know, team success. I mean, Odell's had success, but not, you know, team, but not, you know, deep into January team success. And, And I just think when the NFL basically, uh, as a plan, 
says, okay, look, the Cleveland Browns are going to be the darlings of 2019 because they have, they have turned it around. We're putting them on, on Monday night football in week two. We're putting them on Sunday night football at home in week three. And we're putting them in Monday night football in week five. No team in the first month of the season is as famous and as exposed, not even the Patriots, as the Cleveland Browns. And so how are they going to handle that? And not, and not only how are they going to handle it, but by the way, how's the offensive line going to be, you know, after trading Zeitler? And, and again, it isn't to say that I don't think that they're an improved team. They obviously are an improved team. But there's a lot of other stuff other than what happens for three hours on Sunday afternoon. And I think that's one of the things the Browns are finding out now. No doubt. I mean, the offensive line was always a concern, was a concern for me all summer. I think the secondary is a concern. I mean, look, Denzel Ward struggled to tackle last week. That was really bad. That was problematic. And, and, the, and last year, you know, he made all rookie, all that. But last year they were a zone team. Now they're playing man-to-man. Can they hold up? And the defensive front looked like when, once it got tired, once Olivier Vernon and once, once Garrett got tired, then we saw Tennessee move the football. To me, their defensive front can be dominant, but if they're not in great shape, and they get tired in the third or fourth quarter, then every quarterback becomes good. Look at Kyler Murray this week. He couldn't play for three quarters. Detroit's defense was exhausted, and all of a sudden he came back and he looked really good. So I I, I think, and I've said this, I I said this, Freddie Kitchens has got the hardest job in the NFL because they got expectations, and they don't even understand. They think they're working hard, and they don't even – it reminds (laughs) me of a time when I was at the Patriots, and we were practicing against the Redskins down in Richmond. And RG3 watches us, watches the team. The team on its own run gassers. And RG3 says to his buddy, and I'm standing right there, man, they're like some Catholic League team. They really get after it. And then he walked right off the field. <laughs> That's really good. Well, my thanks to Michael Lombardi uh, for giving us some time and his knowledge. There aren't a lot of people who know exactly what goes on in the land of Belichick. Uh, Mike Lombardi does. And, you know, I just think this is going to be a really, really interesting chemistry experiment with Antonio Brown. My opinion, it's 65-35 that Antonio Brown works and that the New England Patriots get something good out of him and he will last the season. A couple of recommendations. Uh, Chris Sims' Unbutton podcast, he's got three podcasts every week. Basically, he has a reaction Monday, a deep dive film Wednesday, and he makes his picks every Friday. Listen to Chris Sims. I guarantee you that you'll not only be educated about the NFL, you'll sometimes be infuriated about his opinions, but that's what makes good podcasting. Also, Mike Florio's podcast up this week, he's got Jamal Adams of the New York Jets Listen to Mike's Mike's podcast as well. Now, let's go over to our next guest, David Bakhtiari. Made the NFL's all-pro team in 2018. In the midst of a firestorm of a season for Green Bay, Bakhtiari played very well. I caught up with him on my training camp trip to Green Bay. Let's talk for a minute about the coaching change between uh, from Mike McCarthy to Matt LaFleur. You know, obviously, 
whatever you felt about Mike McCarthy, and he had his major fans in this locker room, obviously. But I, I always think that once a coach who's been here for been there for a long time gets changed, that it isn't just about the scheme uh, or anything. It's about a, just a major change. Everything is different. So what has the change been like for this team, and what's the change been like particularly for the players? Um, I mean, first things first, you talk even just as pure aesthetics. When we had this new coach come in, you know, the wall, the painting, like the color on the walls has changed. Everything's kind of brighter in the hallways. It, you know, add more steel, just kind of make it look more sleek and sharp. And uh, right away in, in OTAs, Matt's whole thing was, you know, we're going to, we're not going to forget our past. We're going to honor our past, but we're going to make our own future. We, we're not going to live in the past anymore. We want to, you know, this is the 2019 Packers and we're going to be moving forward. So uh, that was right off the bat something I can say it was a big change. And, you know, I mean, Mike did a great job. That's obviously why he was here for so long. But, I mean, this is the nature of the business. You know, players, coaches, GMs, as you can, you know, have you seen in the past, they come and go. And um, I know I'm excited. I think Matt's done a good job coming in. He's growing as his first time being a head coach. Every day you can see him getting more comfortable and understanding, you know, how to balance everything out. And from what I can see and the little exposure that we've had so far, um, I've been very pleased, really. David, it was so – the environment on the outside of the locker room last year seemed so toxic, you know, that, oh, my God, it's it's dysfunctional in there. Rodgers and McCarthy are at each other's throats and – and all that. What was it? You know, this is a kind of a general question. How how did you react when you saw and heard some of those things? And what truly was it like in that locker room last year? So that that's the part that I find that's funny because if there was a big rift, that's happening behind closed doors after hours. And you know, I think you you know you being around football so long, there are so many things going on. Even when a, a quarterback gets injured in, in the middle of a game, you know, when Aaron goes down, I don't even know we have a backup in until I'm jogging out there and I see there's a different <laughs> there's a different jersey lining up at quarterback. So hold on a second. Last year, opening game against the Chicago Bears. I take, didn't even know we got carded. I didn't know any of that. Because I'm, I'm over there going sit because we get pushed all the way over in the far benches. And then, you know, they, we'll, we'll go over a couple cut-ups of protections and stuff, and I'm kind of just, you know, in my zone, in my element. And at some point, I guess, there's times where they'll just grab the center real quick and or Corey gets up to go grab a water. I don't know if that's a difference of grabbing water or he's going to go take snaps with the, the next quarterback. So, you know, when, when that happens, you, you just – things are happening so fast and you have to be so focused on your job. I always believe you've got to control what you can control. So I'm not over there worrying about someone else's job and responsibilities. So when things like that happen, you come back to uh, with Aaron and Mike. I, it's – it wasn't as oblivious. Now, were there times that they disagreed? Yeah, they'd, they'd worked together for a long time. Of course, they have to be extremely comfortable. They're like, hey, you know, I want this instead of that. No, I want to do this instead of that in the meetings. And they have, they have those conversations in front of us. But to be malicious, uncomfortable, broken up, uh, disconnect, I didn't. You never else. saw it. No. Yeah. Um, with David Bakhtiari of the Packers, David, for those – who are going to watch the Packers this year. You basically ran a semblance of the same offense for a long time in this organization, long before you got here. And I wonder, 
what in your mind when people watch the Packers this year, what will they notice that's a little bit different about your offense? Um, yeah, I've gotten this question a few times. It's, I think, uh, uh, balance and uh, misdirection. This offense, I think, is built off of misdirection of having um, same formations, same uh, motions, and you have four different plays, three different plays going different ways off of that one action. Um, I mean, a lot of balance. We marry pretty much our runs are going to be our play-action pass. Nothing's going to look different. So that's what's tough. And I know teams that have played this, or even our team before last year, they played this offense obviously because we played the Rams. I even even was talking to Clay. Clay's biggest thing is it's tough to tee off when you're focused on so many different things happening because the same formation, the same motions could be four different things happening. Like, Plus, there's, it's, it's, a bit, it's a tempo offense too, exactly. right? They want it to go fast. Yes, you, they, they want to stretch the field. They truly honor, you know, zone. When everyone talks about the zone, zone is zone at the end of the day. You have inside zone, you have outside zone. Very vanilla when people talk about that. But the foundation and what – um, the emphasis you put on it is what really makes it different. So I, I can confidently say this zone is completely different because we ran zone last year in our old, you know, for the last six years. But if you were to say, are they the same? No, completely different based off just the foundation and the mindset. That's as much I can give you without getting too much into yeah. the details. You know, I, I don't want to give him schematically and get in trouble. Let me, David, I, I want to ask you this because I asked um, – It's. I, I come here, you know, I'm going to watch one practice, and I, saw, and I don't really know, obviously, what you guys are doing. But this thought occurred to me coming in here. You know, Aaron Rodgers has been on this team for 14 years coming into this training camp. So he's gotten used to doing things a, a certain way, and it's worked pretty well for him. If he never played another snap, he's going to walk into the Pro Football Hall of Fame one day. So – the last thing you want to do, if you're a new coach and a new staff coming in, the last thing you want to do is say, hey, by the way, okay, I know you've been speaking French for the last 14 years, but now we're going to speak Russian, and you can't speak French anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you don't, you don't say that. You say, okay, we're going to do this, but you also have to use your head. And so I asked uh, Matt LaFleur this before practice today, and I, I said, is there – a play that sort of illustrates something that you never saw coming, but that Aaron called like in a practice so far this year. And you say, well, wait a minute, what's that? And then you figure it out and you say, oh, and that, that was good. And he said, I got a perfect one for you. We're having the family night scrimmage and there's a run called, like I, I guess an inside run was mm -hmm. called. And Aaron, he said, we had not even practiced we have not put in exactly how we would change something like that. Aaron changed it, and he did it, you know, even though we don't have it down in our playbook yet. We haven't, we haven't really worked on that yet. And Aaron changed it, and the other ten guys on the field all got it. And we ran a play that, and, he's, and you know, he didn't know exactly what happened on the play, but it was successful instead of banging our heads against the wall and just running the play that, that we called. Do you recall the play? I remember exactly. It was uh, move the ball. We went right down. It was um, actually the last play of uh, when we were on their goal line. Um, yeah, that that truly, you know, you go back to Aaron. The what makes him so special, which people always try to analyze and break down 
for the six years going on my seventh year of working with him, physically all, has all the intangibles. But his mental aptitude of the game and just sheer knowledge and recall, it's, stu- it's stupid. He, uh, it's like a computer. You, tell him, you show him something one time, he'll remember it the rest of his life. He'll remember going out there. He'll know all the adjustments. It's, it, for, for me, it, you know, it took me a couple weeks to understand this playbook, and I'm still I'm trying to get to the point of mastering, obviously, because that's what makes you a better football player. You think less, you get to yeah. worry more about your own techniques and playing the game. I mean, it probably took him, I would say, probably a couple of days. Like, he doesn't fumble over uh, formations. You know, he's already utilizing cadences. He knows how to check out of certain plays. And just like you said right there, he knows going up, you know, we have an inside zone. The defense is presenting a uh, front that's obviously counterintuitive to the inside zone. So what does he do? Do you I think you would have had a loss on that play? I don't think it would be nearly as successful as an outside zone, obviously. Right. But, um, you know, I it's so you run the ball to the outside and the play succeeds. Exactly. It, he, yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, you got to beat the man across from you. But when you put your players in good positions, more times than not, you're going to be more successful. Yeah. Was there anybody on the field right then, to your knowledge, who wouldn't have been on the team last year and wouldn't know what he was trying to change to? Because Matt LaFleur was so impressed that he got all 10 guys on the same page in a matter of seconds. Uh, I don't. I don't really know what I mean. Yeah, no, no. But what I'm saying is, we're all uh, all ten guys on the team last year who were on the are field. You, on that on the field play? right now. Yeah. Mm, no, no. I mean, we just signed a, a new guard. Yeah. So obviously he's yeah new to the game. But I it's, mean, it's pretty, it's fairly impressive though that he was able to communicate however he did. Yeah. That he wanted to change that play to something that you guys had not installed yet. Mm-hmm. It just again that just puts the emphasis and goes to the point that his just knowledge of football is so vast, and it's what makes him special. Obviously, physically he's got all the talent, but mentally, you know, he steps ahead. I, I even go back to in our old um, regime when we would do you know no huddle. He's got sign language. You would talk about different language. He's got sign language for wide receivers. He's got sign yeah. language for offense line. That's two languages. And then on top of that, he's got a third sign language to communicate with us for road games on our cadence. And our cadence, we have like eight to ten different cadence. So you can do all that, read a defensive coverage, and then put us in a good position if you need to check a play. Like It's those little things that people don't notice because they just see him going up there, do a couple signals, take the ball, and throw it to the open guy. Sounds very simple, very vanilla, but just the little nuances that – the guys who actually work with him see how much he really has to yeah. uh, work with. I mean, it's it's like a it's like a composer who's just a genius, and he's yeah. got every single one of his uh, 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 the people in his what, what, what in his mean? orchestra in his orchestra yeah. on the same page hitting yeah. the right notes at the right time. It's it that that's what makes it so beautiful and poetic. I I, I have a I have a question about that, and I'm I. I because when you were saying that, I'll tell you what I was thinking. For a long time, I coached a girls' travel softball team, 10 and under girls, and we had a real funny system of signs. I would tell them, if I call out an American city or state that begins with A, B, or C, you're sacrifice bunting. And if I call out uh, uh, an American city that begins with D, E, or F, you're stealing. 
okay? So I would just call out, you know, if I ever called out, okay, hey, Rebecca, Houston, Houston, and they would know, okay, we're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. But if I said Boston, Boston, they would Bunt. know, okay, we're bunting. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not, and they're, these are nine-year-old kids, and they got a kick out of it. It was fun for them. And I've often thought that some of the weird things, like Peyton Manning has described some of his signals, that he could change every week depending on if there was somebody on that defense who had been on the Colts or the, the Broncos before, okay, hey, we're changing our audibles, and here's the activation. If I say this, that you know, this play is on and everything. And honestly, I don't really think it's that hard. You know, I think if you know exactly what the, the, the sort of the system is and all that, I don't think it's that hard. But what surprises me about what you're saying is that he's got a different one for all the all the position groups. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got different words and he get I mean, it'd be hard for me to keep for, for me to keep that straight yeah, in I my mean, head. So you know? the way I look at it when he's yeah, I, I don't know how many routes that you have to do on the road, but instead of bringing him in the huddle and wasting their energy, keep him out there, signal whatever you have to. And obviously there's faked signals and then once he does something it'll yeah. activate the signals from here on out like you're saying. Yeah. The states that aren't in uh past F don't mean anything. So yeah. he's got signals. And then once he hits a certain one, that means everything from here on out is live. And then that's one language. And then he's got our language. And then he's got the snap count language, reading the defense. It's just that, you know, you truly got to appreciate it because I, you never know when the next that is going to come around yeah. because it doesn't happen yeah. very often. So to be in, to be around it and know, you know, the micro details, it's, Pretty cool, yeah. I gotta say. Finishing up with David Bakhtiari. So, I wonder. I, I I've asked a lot of linemen this question, especially over the r- recent years. You know, I have been sort of watching how the spread offense coming in from college to the NFL um, has really made it difficult to scout offensive linemen, and so. The Baltimore Ravens had this really interesting theory, and that is that we're not going to draft at least high any spread offensive linemen. We're going to go more to Big Ten-type guys because a lot of those linemen really are more, um, you know, they're they're probably going to run it a lot. They're a little bit more traditional, old-style, pro-style Um, you know, the Iowa, uh, you know, linemen over the years. And and I wonder now when you watch the game and when you especially watch the college game, can you tell when a guy is going to have a really difficult time making the adjustment from college to pro football and sort of conforming to the stuff without the really wide splits that they have in a lot of college programs? Uh, I think when when I watch – College football, when I see the players, the first thing I look at when it comes to linemen is their feet. If you if you, you ain't got the feet to keep up with people, that's – I mean, these guys at this level, everybody's an athlete. And yeah. I mean, you see it in the combine. Obviously, you see the greats. They Their ability to move laterally, and obviously they have the strength to go down the middle of you, that's the number one thing. The second thing, I mean, if you can't pass protect in this league, no one's going to trust you. Mm-hmm. And especially depending, you know, when you, especially when you have a franchise quarterback, I mean – that's the one thing I've noticed, even switching positions, when we have running backs coming in, if you can't 
pass protect and know where the line's going and know who you have, they're not going to put you out there because they're not going to trust you. And that right there limits you to your reps. And that's I think that's a big thing because I think these running backs in college are, aren't getting fully exposed to understanding pass protection schemes. And it's a big thing when it comes to the pros. So obviously when I, when I see spread offenses and go back to linemen, it's I, I look at feet and your ability to mirror a guy. I mean, I, I believe run blocking is an attitude. You got to want to run block. You got to be able to attack a guy. And um, you can see some true Maulers, the Iowa, the Brian Balagas of the world. Right. Um, you know, I, I didn't Marshall come, Yonda. And, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I wasn't a Big Ten guy. Yeah. But uh, for me, I, I feel run blocking is purely a mindset. If you if you're going into it and you're ready to, you know, smash some heads, it's you're going to be a good run blocker. Yeah. I'm going to just ask you one last question. This is something that I. I've always I've always thought that when you play football and over the years you've seen that some people have a difficult time to adjust to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday life during the season of a football player because on Sunday you're supposed to be very physical and very angry and everything. And I wonder have you ever had difficulty with that side of your life? knowing that for three hours every week in the fall, you have to try to kick the living crap out of the guy <laughs> across from you. And then for the rest of the week, you have to be a gentleman and open door for open doors for people and be nice and, and mm -hmm. all that. Has that ever been remotely to you a challenge? No. Uh, I think I got a good switch. I know when to turn on, turn off. I think the nice thing is I, mean, I, I my, my teammates know this. I get, I get pretty weird when it comes to game day. Like, I'm all smiles, but I get turned into kind of a different guy. You can kind of see it in my eye. Uh, but I, I look at it as a way to, uh, like, they're going to pay me to go out there and physically go dominate another person, another man on the line of scrimmage. And that's empowering when you can do that, when you can physically impose your will. And it also is a great stress reliever because then when I come home, I'm – I mean, I'm happy as can be. Uh, I, I let out all my, my stress. The last thing I want to do is get into anything where I'm like, oh, I, I just want to sit down and be on the couch. I would say the only thing that is tough is when you're a professional, at least for me, I, I love to compete, and I find, I find a way to make anything a competition because I like putting skin in the game. I like making it worth it. Let's, 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 I don't want to do 50 or 70%. Let's go 100%. So my buddies – Always like, man, you're always just like relax. It's just it doesn't mean it. I'm like, no, nah, I'm if we're gonna do this, let's go all the way. And if we're not, then I'll just I'm there's there is no in between. It's there's no gray area. It's a, we're, it's yeah. black or white for me. So where are you most competitive <laughs> other other than football? Like, is there a game? I mean, is there a is there I mean is there a, is there another sport? I mean, are you a golfer? What what's your what is your other outlet? competitive outlet or what are your other I mean I mean I, I love doing any really any sports so I just got bad at golf so that's good um yeah. I'm and I get mad at myself that's more of a, a you know there's no one else I can really come you know get angry with it's me and against the course I gotta yeah. I gotta beat the course uh but outside of sports really for me it's you know board games get very competitive I'm Strategy board games, me and my buddies from the hometown, we always play uh, Catan growing up, and we, uh, we still play today. Monopoly still very big. Uh, 
what's your backgammon? What is, I mean, all those games. What is your um, uh, thing in Monopoly? What do you like to be? You like oh. to be the hat? <laughs> well, we what have is this, that thing called? The the, the, the piece. piece. Yeah, the yeah. Piece. yeah. Uh, if I'm going the old school Monopoly, I kind of like the car. You like the car? Yeah, that or there's like what a, about the a, iron? The thumbtack, thumb right? The thumbtack. I've, I've always kind of been. Have you ever have you ever been the iron? Have you seen that? I'm not a fan. It's too too small. I it, love the iron. I, it's I, if it, I guess if it was bigger than the actual handle, I could really grab. It. I just, it's too kind of lightweight for What's me. What's your favorite property in Monopoly? Ooh, that's a great question. Thank you. All right. Um, that's why they pay me it, the big bucks. <laughs> I would say it really depends on how much money you have at a given point. I think people, what people do is they get too concentrated on they I get need, fixated I need on, on the big property, on boardwalk, so boardwalk and, park and then nobody ever lands so on you, those. So you have the blues, you have the greens, and you have the yellows. Uh, for me, it depends how much money I have. I I would say at the end of the day, best bang for your buck is the yellow greens, but. Yeah. If you don't have a no, lot of money, I, like, I have I like no the problem oranges. going. You, you want to know why I like the oranges? Going reds or oranges because the oranges are great because you land on New York and Tennessee, and you know how if you land on let's say the the greens and they have like three houses, mm-hmm. sometimes people can't afford that. I want my money, so when people land on it, they can't say, "Well, I'm out. I I I, I can't afford to pay it." No, I want cash. So if you <laughs> land on the, I think the hotels on Tennessee about and New York. Nine fifty. I was I was gonna say eight fifty or nine fifty. I think it's nine fifty. Yeah. The last one's a thousand. Yeah, yeah. Not that so, I I'm like super into Monopoly or anything. <laughs> I just play it all the time. You're a Monopoly and, nerd, aren't you? I, a little bit. I I I can't. So there's different. Are themes. you stupidly competitive and do you yell during Monopoly? You know, again, I think I'm really good with my emotions. So like, deep down, I'll be mad because like I really think I should win every time just because that's the competitive nature of myself. Yeah. But I think I have a good job. Like, hey, at the end of the day, it's just a board game. Yeah. No, like, I got. Did you ever crush fights. Aaron Rodgers in Monopoly? No, but he's. That's really, honestly, one of the few people I can say is more competitive than me. Yeah. He. Anything. Have you played a board game against Aaron Rodgers in your life? Have we played a board game? We've played cards. Um, I can't remember if I taught him Catan or not. I know we haven't played Monopoly. Yeah. But I will say, so there's this card game called Pedro, which is a two-on-two. Uh, my parents taught me growing up. It's a competitive uh, card game. I taught him once, and we played it, and he's doing, str- like, strategy-wise, wow. getting the points where it took, again, this is the same thing with the playbook. Like, what, take, what took me a couple weeks to a couple months to figure out, first, second time playing, he's, like, doing vet moves. I'm like, Jesus. He's doing veteran moves he, he, right it's, away. It's just it, it's it's truly impressive how quick he picks <laughs> something up and like he can he knows the strategy. Like uh, if one card's worth five points and one card's worth one point, and he knows he can't get the five anyways. It's almost good to sacrifice the five, which people don't do. Sacrifice your five so you can at least take one point that he still has, and the other person's one point just making two. So it's only giving up three instead of five. You know what my new goal in life is? I want to kick your ass <laughs> at Monopoly. <laughs> I want to beat you so that you are rolling around on the ground and you're like whimpering <laughs> and asking for mercy. Oh man! Would you ever play me in Monopoly? Oh, absolutely! But I don't think that you would kick my ass. I don't think that's. <laughs> I think I think I'm too veteran savvy. I think my my biggest uh, my best trade is definitely when it comes to trading. I kind of know how to. Maneuver you know how to trade? Like I said, people get. They kind of get too amped up on the nice yeah. properties. They forget railroads are pretty good. Railroads are excellent. They're very good. But you want to get all four. Exactly. Well, you really want to get thing, four. It's almost better to never pay for one, but then you get them. 
Yeah. Because you're you're talking they're two hundred each. You got four, and that's eight hundred bucks. The one the one last thing I think I've always thought that Baltic and Mediterranean are really <laughs> underrated. Extremely. You know why? Because it's like you you're come taking. You're taking, You're taking their, go, their money. go money. Exactly. I love that. I'm a big fan of them. I I'm love a big, those big two fan deeds. Yes. All right. Listen, okay, so you're not a bad guy. You agree with me on Baltic <laughs> and Mediterranean. All right, David Bakhtiari, thanks so much. This was fun. I far more enjoyed our board game discussion than our football <laughs> discussion, but both were pretty good. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, my thanks to David Bakhtiari and also to Michael Lombardi, a really informative, interesting podcast. And I may have gotten a little too bold with Bakhtiari, but I am going to play him in Monopoly, and you will hear it first, the results of that game right here on the Peter King podcast. I mean, at least I hope I'll end up playing him. And thank you very much for joining me on the Peter King podcast. And remember, every Monday morning, you can hear my FMIA mini pod. It's about a 12 to 15 minute podcast in which I tell you what I've got in football morning in America that week. I mean, you can always just get up at 515 and read 10,000 words, or you can get a sneak preview of the column from me, including me reading part of my column to you. And that is a scintillating listen, I have to tell you, Um, especially with a voice that Uh, is going to be a little bit scratchy because I recorded about 4.15 a.m. on Mondays after I finish writing. But I hope you listen to that, and I hope you read Football Morning in America every Monday at Pro Football Talk and at NBCSports.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this week's podcast, and I'll be back with a fresh one next week.